between the years when the oceans drank Atlantis and the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of, when shining kingdoms lay spread across the world. Hither came Conan, the Cimmerian, sword in hand. It is I, his chronicler, who knows well his saga. Now let me tell you of the days of high adventure. Welcome to Hither Came Conan. I'm your host, my name is Steven, and we're back once again to immerse ourselves in the comic book adventures of Conan, the barbarian from Sumeria, and he's out there treading them jeweled thrones of the earth under his sandaled feet, and we are lucky enough to bear witness to that. Today we're looking at Conan the Barbarian, issue number two from Marvel Comics. It has a cover date of December 1970, but it hit the stands in September. The issue sports a cover price of 15 cents, and the title of the issue is Lair of the Beast Men. It was written by Roy Thomas, pencils by Barry Windsor Smith, inks by Sal Buscema, and the letterer was Sam Rosen. As our story opens, Conan stands over the body of a white-haired Yeti in green jockey shorts. The, the Yeti is wearing them green jockey shorts. Not Conan. Conan likes his jockey shorts to be brown and furry. Anyway, this beast had attacked the young barbarian as he traveled through the Asgardian wilderness. And so Conan, having no choice but to defend himself, killed the brute in the kind of battle that is the perfect sort of action to print up in a comic book just like this one. Unfortunately, the entire fight happened between issues and off panel. So we, the readers, missed the entire thing coming into the story only after it was all over, which, you know, kind of sucks. but. I guess we must soldier on. Conan doesn't dwell on the killing for long, however, and he's soon off, tromping through the snow as more falls all about him. Wrapping his new fur cloak around his nearly naked body, the Sumerian grumbles in annoyance. He complains about the cloak, the fur cloak, the only protection he has against the freezing temperatures that he treks through. The fur cloak that he'd stolen from some random wandering warrior, just some dude out there walking around in the wilderness just like him, who Conan apparently attacked and killed, and then stole the guy's cloak and his sword. But this event also happened between issues and off panel. He also complains about that sword, which, again, might have been something that he had to kill to acquire. But it's blunt and it's dull-edged, which has the barbarian all sorts of cranky. But come on, Conan, beggars can't be choosers, dude. Chill out. Anyway, as the salty Sumerian trudges through the snow, he stumbles across a hot little number cowering behind a tree. That's right. In the middle of the snowy wilderness, Conan finds himself a piece of tail. And in case you don't speak asshole, I just mean that there's a woman out there in the snow. And like Conan, she too isn't dressed for the weather. Conan asks her if she's lost and she replies by running from him. Proving that with youth comes stupidity, Conan chases after her, not at all suspecting any foul play. Now, one could argue that the barbarian youth was concerned. I mean, he finds a woman in the snow, in the wild, with her legs and midriff bare to the elements, and I'm sure he assumes that she needs some help. 
And so when she runs, of course, he's going to chase after her. He doesn't want her to die out there. But of course, it's all a trap as she leads him to another one of the white haired beastmen who wearing armor and hiding behind a tree strikes Conan across the stomach with his pike, shattering the shaft of the weapon in the process. Conan tries to rise, but another of the beasts comes up from behind him and cracks Conan across the back of the head with a big stick, knocking the Sumerian into unconsciousness. The woman, Moira, commands the two beastmen to take Conan up and bear him to their home, Brutheim, only to be dressed down by the beastmen who remind her that it's not her place to give orders to them, members of the Brutorian Guard. After all, she's nothing more than a mere human. And so the trio take Conan, who they call a manling, into a cave, the entrance to Brutheim, the land of always light, the underground city that is the home of the beastmen. Conan, still out, is shackled and thrown into a dungeon with the other manlings, all of whom are slaves to the beastmen. The leader of the manlings is Kiord, the chief thrall who tells Conan how it is here in the land of always light. The humans have been raised in slavery and have never been in the open air of the surface world. Conan, Kiord tells him, needs to dismiss any thoughts of escape and get used to life in Brudheim because he ain't leaving. He's here for the rest of his life. He's going to die here, slave to the beastmen. He then tells Conan the history of the manlings. Many generations back, the manlings lived on the surface world just like Conan until a war party of men were sent out into the icy wastes to hunt down and kill the beastmen, who at the time were only rumors, but the men could take no chances. If the rumors were true, they weren't about to allow the beastmen a chance to take them out first, you know? And so the hunt began. The beastmen, of course, were real, and Though they were much more primitive than those that are now in control, they do make quick work of the human war party, taking them prisoner and using them along with those they soon abduct as slave labor. Eventually, the beastmen discovered a long-abandoned hidden city deep underground and decided to move in and start themselves a civilization. Kjord's story ends as a pair of guards arrive to take the manlings from the dungeon and put them to work. Conan uses the opportunity to attempt an escape, but fails. He does, however, draw the attention of Jagor, the leader of the Beastmen, who really... Well, hey, folks. Um, I do hope that you will accept my most sincerest of apologies for breaking into the episode like this, but I couldn't help but break in here and correct a most grievous mistake. See... Once I finished recording and editing an episode, I step into the bathroom, the, the only place in this house where I can sit in relative peace and quiet so that I can listen back to the completed episode just to make sure that everything sounds good and clear and factual and all that. Well, it's here in the episode that I have stumbled upon a huge problem. And while I do address it later in the show, you know, once I realize the horrible mistake I've made, my neurodivergent brain has been twitching like mad ever since at the thought of you, dear listener, thinking of me as some kind of charlatan who doesn't really know his stuff when it comes to this particular Conan issue. See, it's at this point in the episode that I incorrectly name the King of the Beastmen Jagor, when in fact the King of the Beastmen is Gakri. 
Now eventually, as you near the end of this episode, I will place the blame for my mistake directly upon the shoulders of whomever wrote up the synopsis for this issue over at marvelfandom.com. And while that's true, I've always known going into those synopses that many times they have some of their facts wrong. For example, the very same synopsis begins with the statement, while traveling through Asgard, Conan comes upon the dead remains of a giant beast man. And that's just incorrect. We know from reading the issue that our young Sumerian didn't just stumble upon the bestial corpse. He's actually the one that killed the giant beast man. I knew this and thus made the correction when writing up my version of the synopsis. And yet, the issue with the name of the Beastmen King, despite having been given as both Jagor and Gakri in the synopsis there on the website, well, it just simply slipped past me. And thus, I have made a mockery of this issue, this episode, and even our relationship as host and listener. Again, you will come to a point later in the episode where I draw attention to the blunder, but... Frankly, I just can't stand the thought of what you might think of me starting with that first inaccurate utterance up through to the moment wherein I realize what I had done. I hope that someday soon you will find it in your heart to forgive my crass mistake, dear listener. And for my part, in the future, I will strive to provide for you the type of episode you deserve. And that's one devoid of aberrant information. I thank you for your time and we'll now take you back into the episode, rewinding just a slight bit so that you miss none of the narrative, flawed as it may be. He does, however, draw the attention of Jagor, the leader of the Beastmen, who realize that Conan will never accept a life of slavery, and yet the idea of killing the manling feels like a waste. Jagor's handmaid, Moira, suggests that Conan be used in the games, and Jagor agrees. As day turns to night, Conan and the manlings are taken back to their barracks, though because of the phosphorescent nuggets that stud the cavern walls, it never grows dark in Brutheim. Kjord visits with Conan, showing the barbarian a knife the chief thrall has carved from obsidian. He gives the knife to Conan, but not for Conan to fight back. No, Kjord had intended to use the knife to end his own life, thus putting an end to his torment. But he's decided he's too cowardly to do the act and gives it to Conan so Conan can kill himself, you know, rather than live as a slave the rest of his life. This is dark stuff, folks. Dark stuff in the land of always light. The next day, Conan is taken to the arena, where, among the great war machines that are on display, the weapons that the Beastmen plan on using to carve out their empire on the world above, the barbarian youth fights a white lion. The other manlings are there as well, but they're locked in cages, watching as Conan fights for his life. But thanks to that obsidian knife, Conan is victorious, slaying the lion. Jagor is, of course, again, that should be Gakri quite furious, and he sends his guards in to kill the Sumerian. Kjord, however, has had about enough. Watching Conan stand up to the beastmen has sparked a rebellion in the chief thrall's heart, and the big man batters down the door of his cage, freeing himself, as well as the other manlings, who quickly take the fight to the king and his guardsmen. The beastmen are in shock. 
having never before borne witness to such courage from the manlings, and many of them flee in terror. Those that stay to fight the manling horde, well, they don't last long. Kjord and Conan then push a giant battering ram into the king's boxed seats, causing part of the arena to crumble around them. The king survives, however, and manages to sneak up behind Kjord, killing the chief thrall. Conan, of course, being the type of guy who can't just let something like that stand, kills the king, takes the crown from the corpse, and places it atop Kjord's head, proclaiming to the manlings that when they speak of what happened here today, let the legends say that the king led them to victory, and that the name of the king was Kjord, last of the manlings, but first among men. And that's how the issue ends, so let's just look through that sucker here. Enough talk! For those following along at home, if you recall from the last episode, issue number one was published in July of 1970, and then this issue wasn't published until September. Well, there's a reason for that. See, when the series launched, because Marvel was taking a gamble on Conan, I mean, here was a comic starring a character of dubious moral fiber and was set in a past that had no connection at all to the Marvel Universe. Well. Not yet, anyway. Wink, wink. Anyway, the Top Cats at Marvel were a bit nervous about this book, and so they launched Conan the Barbarian on a bi-monthly schedule, meaning that new issues hit the stands every two months. And so, if I may, since I neglected to talk about this way back in episode number four, let me give you a brief bit of publishing history here, which... I'm sure I'm going to revisit each time we hit an issue where something has changed in regard to the publishing of the title. So yeah, they launched the book with a bi-monthly publishing schedule, but by January 1971, when issue number four was published, Marvel, well, they had the sales numbers back for that first issue and the numbers were big. I couldn't tell you what they were. I mean, I'm sure you can find those numbers out there somewhere online, but Honestly, I didn't bother to look. For me, the exact numbers aren't really all that important. I know that issue number one sold well, and that's all I really need to know at this point. And so the numbers for issue number one prompted Marvel to shift the Conan book to a monthly schedule, starting with issue number four in January of 1971. But by December, with issue 14, they were back to a bi-monthly schedule because Despite how well that first issue sold, the numbers dipped with issue number two and continued to dip with each subsequent issue. In fact, at one point, Stan Lee had made the decision to cancel the title by issue number seven. But thankfully, Roy Thomas, the champion of Conan the Barbarian, the one guy we should probably all gather together and thank for Conan's place in the zeitgeist, if I'm using that word correctly, and I'm probably not. Anyway, Roy Thomas fought the decision, and eventually, as sales began to rise, Conan the Barbarian was back to a monthly schedule by the end of 1972. We didn't have time. That's an important year, and I'm I'm not going to tell you why, but it might have something to do with a certain host of a certain barbarian-themed podcast being brought into the world. Anyway, let's look at the cover and talk about the art for a moment. Uh, The cover is actually very busy. I need you. I'm yours. Before I start recording any of these episodes, you know, when I'm doing like pre-production, 
I always put the cover art together. And by that, I mean the artwork that goes up onto the website that tells everybody which episode this, I guess, this uh, episode is and uh, shows a bit of the art from from the from the uh, spit it out, Stephen, from the, the issue in which I am speaking of. And I found this cover to be fairly busy when it when it when when I was trying to put it together for the 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 episode artwork that goes up on the site it just it doesn't look as good as issue number 1 and again it's because it's it's fairly busy and when I say busy I mean it's got 1 2 3 4 5 6 7 characters on the front cover it's got Conan almost front and center he's got four different beastmen grappling with him one is yelling die manling you are no match for the power of the beastmen and then kind of standing above them would be uh who turns out to be the king of the beastmen zagor once again gakri i wanted to call him zagor but z h a is how you spell the first part of that and i'm pretty sure that zhaja gabor spells hers z h a which zagor Zha Zha Gabor. Is that a coincidence? Maybe, but seems pretty similar, don't you think? Hello, darling. I'm Zha Zha. Anyway, old Zha Gore is standing up on this balcony type thing, and he's got Moira, his handmaiden, standing next to him. And she's kind of, she's not quite pointing at Conan. She's got her hand out as if she's kind of dismissing him, shooing him away or something. I don't know. Like I said, it's a it's a very busy cover, and at the bottom it says, "In the cavern waits doom." Now, with that said, with with the cover talked about, let's get into the art because, as I mentioned in the the previous episode, this is Barry Windsor Smith looking very much like Jack Kirby. But as the series goes on, he becomes more and more Barry Windsor Smith. You can already see it kind of poking through. You saw it a bit in issue one, and you get a little bit more of it here in issue number two. Not on every page. I'm looking specifically at page two, panel number four. There's an image, a a panel that just shows Moira's face, and that is very, it's very Kirby-esque, I think. But I'm still happy. I'm still happy with the art. Uh, Again, I think it's gone up a bit of a notch here with this issue, and it's going to continue to go up. Now, granted, Sal Buscema is the inker on this, so that might have something to do with the art looking a little bit better than the previous issue, and it also might have something to do with, while again, there is more of Barry Windsor Smith that peeks through in certain panels, not throughout the whole thing, but kind of certain panels, it, it's not as noticeable in most panels, and I think that's primarily because of Sal Buscema. I also wanted to point out that when the issue begins, Conan is wearing his helmet with the two horns that stick out the front, kind of like a smaller version of Loki's helmet. He was wearing the same helmet in the previous issue, and it feels very much as if Conan has been given a costume, basically. He wears, so, so far in these first two issues, with the exception of the cloak that he was wearing at the beginning of this issue. He was wearing pretty much the same kind of cloak at the beginning of issue number one as well, which he throws away within the first couple of pages and and never gets back. And he loses his cloak in this issue as well. But the Conan costume at this point is sandals that go up to his calves. 
little brown furry shorts with a gold belt, gold bracelets, some kind of gold medallion necklace thing that hangs around his neck, and then his helmet. Now, his helmet is quite amazing because as he's chasing Moira through the snowy wilderness and he gets cracked in the stomach by this beast man and his, his, his pike, he doubles over and falls to the ground. In fact, he is kneeling on the ground with his head, the top of his head pressed into the snow, and then he starts to rise, and that's when he gets cracked in the back of the head by the other beast man. The entire time he keeps the helmet on, the helmet does not come off of his head. And in fact, as he's being carried back, well, not back, he's never been to Brutheim, but as he's being carried to Brutheim, one of the beast men is, uh, has him over the beast man's shoulder with Conan's head and chest laying across the back of this beast man. So his head, again, is pointing straight down. Helmet is still on his head. Helmet still has not fallen off his head. A beast man holds him aloft above his head and throws him into the cell. The helmet stays on his head. It does not move. That is a magic helmet of Conan's. He does eventually lose the helmet in the issue as he is taken out for the first time to do his slave work. One of the beast men, and I, I am fairly certain it was one of the guys that captured him out in the snowy wilderness, he steals Conan's war helm, as he calls it. Ha! He says, this war helm is not for the likes of a slave. I claim it for my prize. What say you to that, dog? And that's when Conan fights back and tries to escape. And he spends the rest of the issue without the helmet. And then right at the very end, as they're all fighting, the, uh, you know, as the manlings are fighting the beast men and, and fighting for their freedom, Conan kills the beast man that stole his helmet and he takes his helmet back. I also wanted to point out here on the very first page, the opening splash page of this issue, a lot of the Marvel books and a lot of the comics at this time had like these little blurbs at the top of the splash page of that opening page that gives you kind of a quick introduction to the character that you're about to read about or the book or the team or whatever. And this one says from out of earth's dim forgotten past from the centuries, which sprawl between the sinking of Atlantis and the dawning of history comes Conan, the King. Did I just say Conan, the King? I met Conan, the barbarian. Whoa, foreshadowing. We all know he's going to be King eventually, right? I think I've talked about that. Anyway, then you get the title of the issue, Lair of the Beastmen, and then you get this text box, the, the introductory text box for the story. And it says, it is summer in the North Lion Kingdom called Asgard, here in the world of more than 100 centuries ago. So last week I talked about Robert E. Howard's Hyborian Age essay and that Howard scholars consider Conan's adventures to have taken place anywhere from 10 to 20,000 years ago. And so here we are with issue number two of the Marvel run telling us that it did, in fact, take place at least 10,000 years ago, which falls in line with the Conan lore of the books. I found that kind of neat that uh, I think I think Roy Thomas is doing a, a really good job already just within issue number two of making this somewhat, you know, these stories somewhat true to form uh, in regard to Robert E. Howard's stories, Robert E. Howard's stories. Now, I also wanted to talk about uh, Conan's new cloak and his sword. 
And, and again, he had a cloak at the beginning of the previous issue, which he throws away, and he now has another cloak. They look exactly the same, just fur, brown fur cloaks. And he loses the cloak in this issue as well. But he is, as I said in the synopsis, he's complaining about the cloak. He's in the middle of Asgard. There's snow all over. It's snowing. It's summertime. We know that from the last issue. This takes place right after the last issue. You know, he he escaped from the cave in the last issue, and then he sets out on his own. And then sometime between that first issue and this issue, he comes across a wandering warrior, as he puts it, and he takes the guy's cloak and his sword. Now, they don't come out and say it, but I have to assume that Conan killed the guy. I think he makes mention that he waylaid this wandering warrior. And I assume that means that Conan just came across this guy. We don't know if he's Asgardian. We don't know if he's a a Vannerman. We don't know who this warrior is with, but Conan kills him, takes his sword and takes his cloak. We don't know if this was in self-defense. I mean, he said he waylaid him, which if you look up the word waylaid, it doesn't necessarily mean that Conan attacked them. It, it, all right, so the, the definition of waylay is to stop or interrupt someone and then detain them in conversation or trouble them in some way. So that's, that's what Conan has done uh, just based on what he tells us in the story, that he waylays a wandering warrior. And I'm just going to assume that basically Conan saw the guy walking along and Conan thought to himself, it's freezing out here. Granted, I'm a Sumerian, I'm a barbarian, and I'm tough, but still it's cold. I want that guy's cloak. And hey, look, he's got a sword too. I need one of those. And so he he obviously took them, but did he kill the man before he did? I think he did. I also want to point out here that the the beast man that Conan kills before the issue opens, you know, as the issue opens, the the beast man is laying there dead. It is a giant, really, compared to the other beastmen. And, and I, I think the, uh, the two guys that capture Conan make mention, they say, uh, they say to, to, to Moira, when, so, all right, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm getting kind of all over the place. So they, Conan kills this big giant beastman who's probably maybe twice the height of Conan. And then he sees Moira out there in the snow. She's half naked. She's good looking and He's like, hold there, lady. What are you doing out here? I need to. I need directions. Is kind of how it uh, is how it's put. And she runs away. So he goes and 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 chases after her. And he actually does yell at her. I want nothing from you but directions, or at most a night's lodgings. And that's when he's attacked by one of the beastmen. And then the other beastman creeps up behind him and cracks him over the head. And Moira yells at him. Enough. He'll do us no good with a split skull. Back to Brutheim with the wretch. And the beastmen. Don't take kindly to that. Do not seek to give orders to the officers of the Brutorian Guard, woman. You are a useful tool with charms enough to lure the manling to his doom. But now we will take charge. For though you may be the king's favorite, you are still merely human after all. And then as they're carrying Conan into the cave, the guy continues and he says, So, you say you watched from afar while the manling fought and slew our wayward comrade? Gantor serves the giant one a right for striking out ever on his own. So we don't know if there are more of these big giant yeti beastmen out there that have left this underground civilization. 
We don't know why this particular one is twice the size of the others. We, we don't know. They don't give us any of that information going forward. It's, it's kind of a mystery. And, and I, I kind of hope they address that at some point. I would like to know what's going on with these beast men, you know, in the future. And, and if there are more of these Yeti type creatures out there in the, in the wilds of Asgard, we do learn a, a very brief history when we see the beast men back when the, the human men went to hunt him down and attack them. They are, none of them are wearing clothes. They look very, very much like Yeti. They're like Bigfoot out in the snow. They're not, they're, they're, they're brutish. They're bestial, bestial, however you pronounce that. But they're smart enough that when they kill the humans, well, when they attack the humans, they don't kill them. Or at least they don't kill all of them. I don't, I don't, I can't remember. I can't remember if they clarify that, but they, they take some as workers to, to help them with their, their underground city that they have come across. They, they notice the, the humans' weapons, and they realize that if they go out and they abduct the females of these human tribes, that it will help to motivate these men to become their slaves. And eventually, they build up their own society, and they start wearing armor and create these gigantic, huge war machines that they are planning to roll out onto the surface world to expand their empire. Uh, the king wears this crown of tusks from, or, or, or as he calls them, the teeth of long dead tusk bears. So they're, they're a far cry at this point from being mindless monsters out in the, the, the snowy wilderness. But because there was one out there, granted, he wasn't naked like they were when the humans first met them. He was wearing little green trunks. But he had a wooden club. He didn't have a sword. He wasn't wearing armor or anything like that. And then, of course, eventually Conan fights back and that inspires the other slaves to fight back. The whole time Kjord is talking about, uh, you know, throughout this series, throughout this issue, he's talking about a dream he has in which all the beast men are dead and all that's left are the humans. But he's never been brave enough to do anything about it until Conan inspires him to, to fight back. But during, during the battle, the entire time, the king and a couple of guards and Moira, as, as this pitched battle is going on on the arena floor, they're just sitting up there in their box seats just watching. They're not, he's not like directing the battle, or at least he, he doesn't seem to be. They're just, they're just sitting up there. And Kjord decides, hey, there's this big giant battering ram on wheels that is bigger than a semi-truck, basically. It's like this giant freaking war machine. And he decides, let's ram this thing into the box seats where the, where the king is. And so the two of them, Conan and Kjord, start working on pushing this machine. And they struggle and they struggle and it's just... It, it takes uh, one, two, three, four, five, six panels just to get it going. And the whole time, the king and Moira and his guards are just sitting up there watching this. It was very reminiscent of, if you've ever seen the movie, one of the Austin Powers movies. Austin Powers is in some kind of underground lair or in Dr. Evil's, one of his lairs, and he's, he's making his escape. And he's in something. I, I don't remember if it was a, uh, I don't remember what he's driving. He's in some kind of vehicle. And he is driving toward, I think it's a steamroller even. He's driving toward a guard who is 
who, who turns around and sees Austin Powers coming and he flings up his hands and he starts screaming, no. And, and at that point in a serious movie, you would see the steamroller drive over the guy because the guy turned around and is surprised by the steamroller that's already on top of him and he doesn't have time to get out of the way. But in, this, in the movie, in the Austin Powers movie, the camera pulls back and you see that the steamroller is like 50 yards away from the guy and they just have this long drawn out scene where the guy is going, no, and he even goes, no, no, and, and has to stop for breath as he's just standing there as this steamroller slowly bears down on him and after five minutes finally runs over the guy. Well, that's what this felt like because it seems to take them forever to get this thing rolling. And then when they do, they ram it into the box seats where the king is and they're still just sitting there. And then they're, they're, the, the king is like, no, and then the, the thing slams into it and they, everybody falls down. I just, I found that very funny and I know it wasn't meant to be humorous, it wasn't supposed to be a comedic moment, but I couldn't help but think of that Austin Powers movie. And the whole time I'm, I'm reading, it's, it's a full page, and page and a half, basically. And I'm sitting here thinking, why are they just sitting there waiting? I mean, we don't know that they're waiting until the ram hits the box seats. So for all we know, their attention has been drawn elsewhere. They're paying attention to something else. They don't, they don't notice that these two human men are trying to get a giant battering ram moving. And then I guess we're supposed to believe that once they get it going, it roars to life and is just like, boom, just shoots like a freaking bullet across the arena into the box seats where the, where the, where the king is sitting. But I couldn't help but feel as I'm reading and I'm going through each panel and they're, they're pushing and they're pushing and they're pushing and they're pushing. And it's like, is nobody going to stop them? Is it, is, is it really not that obvious what they're trying to do here is, you know, if I was a leader of these beast men, the one person I would be paying the most attention to would be Conan because he's the reason all this is happening. And yet everybody just seems to be ignoring him. And that allows them to ram those box seats with that battering ram. And then of course, Kiord is killed. But looking at it, I'm, I'm a little confused here because the synopsis that I got and rewrote, I got it from marvelfandom.com and then I rewrote it. It says that the king sneaks up behind Kjord and he's the one that kills the chief thrall. But looking back at the issue, it's not the king. It's the, the beast man that stole Conan's helmet because the beast man is wearing a particular bit of headgear that's nothing like the crown that the king wears. And it's the exact same headgear of the beast man that captured one of the beast men that captured Conan and then stole his helmet. So it doesn't surprise me that the synopsis got it wrong because the synopsis also started out saying that Conan stumbled across a dead beast man at the beginning. And that's not what happened. Obviously, if you read it, Conan says that he killed the thing. So I don't know who writes the synopses for these, these sites, but somebody needs to be editing those things. Uh, and that's one of the main reasons I tend to rewrite them, because I find that if I just take what's there, 50% of the time, it's, it's, it's not correct. But the guy, the beast man, kills Kjord, so Conan kills the beast man. He Actually, he gets his helmet back before he kills that particular beast man. So I don't know. I'm really confused now, because I don't know if this beast man who stole Conan's helmet 
gave it to the king, Jagor. And yet one more time, not Jagor, but Gakri. Oh my gosh. Now I'm even more confused. I just realized this whole time that I've been giving the king the wrong name. And now I have to go into that synopsis to see if it's their fault. Hold on just one moment. That was my fault completely. If you've been, yeah, there's a bit here at the, the, whoever wrote this synopsis, they start out the synopsis referring to the king's correct name, Gakree, G-H-A-K-R-E-E. But then by the end of the synopsis, they're referring to the king as Jagor. Now, Jagor is the beast man that was out there in the snow that helped capture Conan and then ends up stealing Conan's helmet. So this synopsis just obviously screwed me all kinds of up. Loud on your knife. Screwed me all kinds of up because I kept referring to the king thanks to their synopsis. Because when I, and I'm not, I'm, I guess I'm going to try to defend myself here real quick. But when I was rewriting the synopsis, because I noticed the, the, the error right at the beginning about Conan you know, the synopsis claiming that Conan just stumbles across this dead beast man. I pretty much deleted the first half of the synopsis and just started writing. And then I referred to the second half half of the synopsis to finish writing my version of the synopsis. And it's the second half of the synopsis on marvelfandom.com that refers to the king as Jagor. And so that's why that's why I got it wrong. So I'm blaming them. It's not my fault. It's not my fault at all. But if you were listening throughout this episode going, why is he calling the King Jagor? What is wrong with him? That's why. And I apologize. And now because of that, I have no idea if there's anything else that I wanted to talk about in this issue because I'm just all out of sorts. And so instead, I am going to stop talking about the issue and move on to a little something that I like to call listener feedback. So I got a couple bits of feedback from the previous issue. The first one is an email that comes from Ed Moore. He is my co-host, my my fellow host with the most over at the Superman Super Show. He also hosts many other podcasts. The one I'm going to point out, though, is the Mighty Thor cast, because that actually comes into play in regard to his his feedback. But he says, first off, I was kind of confused by all of the references to all the Asgardian callbacks being a Marvel Thor fan. And he points out, yes, he's the, he's the host of the Mighty Thor cast, which you can find at comicbooknoise.com slash Thor. He says, once those references stopped, I felt more comfortable with the sand and sandals concept that I have known Conan to be. This was definitely not the Barry Windsor Smith I was expecting and look forward to watching as his style develops to what I'm familiar with from his Marvel Comics Presents Uncanny X-Men approaches to art. Looking forward to reading along as you talk Marvel Conan. See you on the forums. Again, Mighty Thorcast, comicbooknoise.com slash Thor. And the forums he's referring to is the Just Another Fanboy message boards, forums.justanotherfanboy.com, where you can find the Hither Came Conan message board as well, the, the forum for that. 
but yeah, I, I appreciate the feedback. Ed, uh, obviously I had the same reaction when it came to Barry Windsor Smith. I talked about it in that, in that previous episode. I was so looking forward to reading these books when I learned that Barry Windsor Smith had been on, you know, he was the original artist. And in fact, I had already read the Frost Giant's Daughter issue, which is like issue 14. It's right there near the end of his run. And he is very much Barry Windsor Smith by that point. So I just assumed the rest of his run was going to look like that. And so was quite shocked when it turned out to be different, just like you were. The second bit of feedback actually comes from over on Instagram. And it's from uh, New Mutant 8 He says, this was super fun to listen to. You answered the question of the Hyborian Age that I never even answered for myself. I've always just tucked it away as an, okay, I guess, fantasy thing. And I've never read those classic Conans. And that cover, so Kirby-like. I guess I've never seen the earliest Barry Windsor Smith. So yeah, again, it's interesting that I only got two bits of feedback and both of those mentioned the Barry Windsor Smith thing. And uh, obviously all three of us were unaware of what his style was like before he got onto books like X-Men because that's what the three of us are used to, it seems like. And the, uh, the Hyborian Age question that I answered for him, I'm assuming it's, that's the, uh, the fact that the Hyborian Age is supposed to be part of our history on this earth, that it's not just, it's not like Dragonlance takes place on the world of Kryn, which has three moons. ElfQuest takes place on the world of two moons. You know, there are fantasy worlds that are, that are not Earth. There are some fantasy books that, you know, sword and sorcery type books that do take place in a uh, historical past on Earth that never actually existed. And there are some fantasy books and stories that take place on completely other planets, basically. And this is one that takes place on our Earth. And I, I found that interesting, too, once I, once I learned about it. Because... I, you know, I'll mention this. I watched both Conan the Barbarian and Conan the Destroyer this past weekend. I was really in a Conan mood and they're both on Netflix. Uh, Conan the Barbarian is either no longer on Netflix by this point or it's, or it's coming off very, very soon. So if it's still there and you want to watch it and you got Netflix, you need to do that now. But the one thing I always found odd about those movies is that everybody wore a lot of fur. It just seemed like it was either just Leather or fur, it felt like with a, a fantasy kind of story, it felt more like you were watching something that was taking place on a different planet. And that's why everybody dressed the way they did. It also feels like it was, if it was going to be on Earth, it was way, way in the past because it's almost as if they are not that far removed from the days of being cavemen. And that's, that is pretty much the case. I mean, it, I would have to assume because we know that based on the Hyborian age that we talked about last week, that there is a, 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 a cataclysm that happens between the time that Cole was alive and was the king of, now I can't even remember the Thule, something, I don't know. He's the king. He, he's an Atlantean barbarian who ends up being a king. Uh, then there's a, some kind of cataclysm that makes humankind go back to the Stone Age. And so Conan, especially from the movies, feels like it's only just been recently that steel, for example, was discovered and had started to be used as weapons. You know, as as you look through the age of man, there's like a bronze age where people were using bronze tools and bronze weapons. And then eventually the art of 
forging weapons out of steel becomes a thing. And then we get into the steel age. And that's, that's kind of where we are with Conan, but it's like the very beginnings of the steel age because they're not wearing a lot of steel armor. Some, some, some of them are, it just, it feels like it's a, like if, I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say. I, I want to use the name. I, you want, I, I have no idea what's going on in my brain right now. It feels less. When I think of a good fantasy book or a good fantasy movie, I think of stuff like Lord of the Rings, because even though you've got elves and dwarves and trolls and goblins and, and orcs and all that and dragons and stuff, the way that those people dressed and, and whatnot, they look like they are wearing real clothes, something that we would have seen in, in our distant past on earth, you know, very much medieval, uh, Renaissance type of type of clothing. And the Conan movies feel way, way removed from that. It feels like when somebody makes a fantasy movie that is set on a completely different planet. So they're creating an all new wardrobe from scratch. What would these people have worn on this planet? You know, that's what it kind of felt like with their giant helmets and, and, and crazy stuff that they wore, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I don't know. I don't know why I'm going through all this folks. Hopefully you're finding it even a, the, 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 you know, a, a, a tiny bit entertaining, but Hey, if you want to leave some feedback, there are all kinds of different ways you can do it. I'll be leaving some information there at the very end of the show, but Stephen or else at gmail.com is the email address. You can find me on Twitter, Spoutable, Instagram, TikTok, all those places using uh, just searching for at Stephen or else. All that stuff will be in the show notes, so you don't have to worry about writing any of it down. And uh, yeah, you're going to get it again here at the end as the the, the end song plays. But I, I do want to thank everybody for listening, for joining me here this week and giving this episode a, a listen. Next week, we're going to look at Conan the Barbarian issue number three. That's called The Twilight of the grim gray god so until next time folks my name is steven this has been hither came conan be nice to each other hither came conan is a steven or else production find more podcasts at steven or questions and comments can be directed to steven or else at gmail.com find me online at twitter spoutable and instagram by searching for Stephen or else and join my newsletter Stephen says stuff at list.justanotherfanboy.com this is a free Substack where I will send every single podcast episode I host right to your inbox the morning that they are released you can support the show for as little as a dollar a month over at the Patreon by going to patreon.com slash Stephen R or and in return I'm going to do my very best to give you and your fellow patrons podcast episodes just like this one before anybody else I also encourage you to rate this show wherever available and share this episode with a friend. All links will be in the show notes. Many wars and feuds did Conan fight. Honor and fear were heaped upon his name. In time, he became a king by his own hand. This story shall also be told. Hello and welcome to Hither Came Conan. I'm your host, my name is Steven, and we're back once again to immerse ourselves in the comic book adventures. Blah, 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 crackhead, gonna sing a song.
Gonna sing a song about Conan, but that's all I got. To immerse ourselves in the coke comic floppid ding bong dang. Slippy slap, flip flap, bup bap, backpack butt crack. And he's out there treading them drooled threads scarf and bobbasty. I wanna fly. I don't know why I'm singing that song. And the title of the story is Lair of the Beastmen. It was written by Roy Thomas. Pencils by Barry Windsor Smith. I'm gonna just start this whole stupid thing over. What do you say? Bart Knocker. He's out there treading them jeweled thrones under the earth of his stupid, hairy, stinky feet. <sighs> I am uh, three minutes, 43 seconds in, and I so far have gotten nothing, nothing of use, nothing worth saving, just bull crap that'll go in the frickin' blooper reel at the end. Let's try again. Conan tries to rise, but another of the beasts comes up from behind and cracks Conan across the back of the head. <laughs> I don't know what that was. <sighs> I've been screwing up a lot so far in this in this episode. Gonna be a lot of bloopers there at the end. I will have to assume. I can't even say I will have to assume without screwing that up. Great Crom, pull me from this utter crap fest. Anyway. The woman, Moira, commands the two beastmen to take Conan up. The woman, Moira, commands the two beastmen to take Conan up and bear it's about food. Just have a call. Conan, Kiord tells him, needs to dismiss any thoughts. Needs to dismiss dismiss Jagor's Mehimshman. Jagor's handmaid, Moira, convinces the stupid people that feet have hair on the bottom of them. <laughs> Jagor's handmaid, Moira, can smarvishning. Good God almighty. This has been a trudge. Again, I'm like freaking 14 minutes in and I've got crap all. Well, no, I've, I've got quite a bit. I'm maybe a third of the way through the synopsis at this point. Anyway, blooper ended. Beep, boop, beep. Though, because of the phosphorescent, the weapons that the beast man planned to use. The weapons that the beast men plan on using to carve out their empire. Empire, I keep saying in, with an N, E N, as in no. That's not how you spell empire. The weapons that. For those following along, <laughs> Great Crom, 